This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios, which are on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined in the studio by Cerise Howard. Hey, Cerise. Hey, Flick. How are you doing? I'm very well. It's lovely having you in here because we haven't, haven't been on air together for a little while. No, no, too long. I know. We're remedying that as we speak. <laughs> we are. And later tonight we're going to be discussing the upcoming screening series at Melbourne Cinematheque titled Genre Nonconformity and East Side Stories, Decentering the Musical Part 1, which is going to kick off this Wednesday um, as part of Melbourne Cinematheque and will be screening at Acme until the 21st of December. So after wowing festival audiences around the world with the poetic and visually stunning short films such as Good Luck Orlo uh, and Vesna Goodbye, Australian Slovenian writer-director Sarah Kern has made a striking feature debut with Moya Vesna. Uh, following your premiere at the prestigious Benali earlier this year, it was nominated for two major awards, Moya Vesna has gone on to screen at this year's Melbourne Film Festival, International Film Festival, and recently has won a few awards at the Festival of Slovenian Film where Sarah Kern, Sarah Kern won Best Director, a star, the uh, lead actress won the star um, for Best Lead Actress, and the film also received the Slovenian Art Cinema Association. Uh, it is my great pleasure to have Sarah Kern here in the studio with us. Welcome to Primal Screen, Sarah. Um, hello. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be here. It's, uh, it's um, really kind of quite a fascinating, you know, for – I love that – I was chatting to um, Goran Stalevsky about the fact that his film opened up Mel- Melbourne International Film Festival um, and I love that we are returning back to the Melbourne screens with Moya Vesna. Um, this is shot in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. Um, whereabouts exactly? Um, mainly St Albans. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, those, you know, parts of town that have got a lot of um, Slavic communities. So, actually, the street that we shot on, um, it was mainly, like, Croatians and Polish people. Actually, the the house that we shot in was built by this Polish grandfather and, and now his kids live there and it's all, like... <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, it was quite... It was fun exploring those, you know, the suburbs and, yeah... I bet. Um, it's an incredibly um, impressive debut. And this is the first Australian Slovenian co production, which was a real surprise to me. Um, how did that come about? Um, yeah, it was quite complicated, <laughs> the whole thing. I mean, especially for the, for the producers. There was a lot of, um, you know, because no, there wasn't any ag- agreements between the countries, um, you know, co production agreements and stuff like this. Um, but yeah, it's just, um, it just seemed like a natural thing for me to write, you know, to, to write a story with a, with a story, um, a story with a story <laughs> well, <laughs> with, um, you know, a Slovenian Australian family because, you know, I'm a migrant from Slovenia. So I just felt like this was kind of natural yeah. for me to do that. And then, 
all the complications <laughs> around the, you know, actually um, making it happen arose from from that. But um, yeah, I'm very excited that you know, because it's such a small community, like mm. Slovenian community here, and Slovenian. I mean, the country is so small, and it's so nice to to hear some Slovenian language in a yeah. you know, in an Australian film. Absolutely, yeah. and we're going to play a little clip. Um, this is the trailer for Moya Vesna. Um, and yes, it is going to be out in cinemas soon, but we are having a chat beforehand. took us to Bushrangers Bay. Alright, and I was swimming and I was swimming and then I just sort of realized uh, that I couldn't get out. You know? I'm gonna die. So Moya Vesna is um, a really fascinating and very intimate tale um, with these two young, uh, well, a young girl at the centre, Moya, and her older sister, Vesna, who is heavily pregnant. Um, I was, I find it kind of such a fascinating um, time in which you've captured here. It is in the kind of very early aftermath of their mother's death. um, And we kind of learn more about that as the film progresses. Just before we get into um, the rest of the film, I just want to, the characters of Moya and Vesna and Cerise and I were chatting earlier today about the uh, the pun of the title. I suppose that's one way to put it. Um, well, there's, a, there's a play on, on words yeah. there. With what, what I know of Slavic languages uh, through my under, you know, re- knowledge, passing knowledge of Czech, that I know that Moya is a possessive and Vesna, I, I, I thought might be my dear or my darling or something like that, but I'm not totally on point there am i sarah I'm in the no, neighborhood k- kind of close mm. um <laughs> not that close yeah. no vesna means um spring mm. um but it was also i mean it's, it's also this um pagan goddess of, of spring and then the name um it's like a it's a very well-known slavic name um and yeah i just you know i just put these two names together and and it's Moya Vesna, and it's I love the the idea that it kind of um, you know this, the people that understand Slavic languages just kind of understand a little bit more, um, or it's maybe a little bit less exotic sounding mm. for them. But we also are not translating it to my Vesna, for example, or my spring. Mm. Um, yeah, and and also because the film is um, centers on on little Moya so much, and it's shot from her point of view. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it kind of makes sense that um, you know it's titled my my Vesna my Vesna. Yeah. She she focuses on on her sister Vesna throughout the whole film. Yeah, she's very focused on her as well, and she she kind of acts as something of a sort of surrogate mother for Vesna, who herself is going to become a mother. She's she's pregnant, maybe eight or nine months pregnant in the film. Um, I really love as well that the title has this collapse that we also see in the narrative where. The, the two girls just seem to be so opposite in so many ways and yet Moya is constantly looking out for Vesna and her everything she does seems to be in service of making sure she's okay. Um, how did you first decide on the setup between that family dynamic? 
Hmm. Um, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's um, you know, the way I like to write stories is um, I start with, um, you know, with an idea and then, um, and then I like to shape the story or rewrite the story as... As as the production process goes along, you know. Mm. So once the the actual people come in that are gonna embody these characters, then um, my imagination just goes all over the place, you know. And I I want to kind of um, tailor the each character to to fit the person who's actually gonna play it. Mm. Especially when working with non actors, I find this is really important and really you know you can really kind of. Um, yeah, make interesting characters, you know, mm. when you respond to to um to things in this way. And the same goes for locations and, you know, every like yeah, every everything that comes along the process kind of um yeah influences me in a way. Yeah. Um but yeah, this I always knew that there was gonna be um these two sisters at the centre of the film and um they have this big age difference. And um, and this question of um, you know where <laughs> where is the mother or who's mm. going to be the mother in this in this family now you know that the the actual mother is gone um, but I, I think there's a feeling maybe that um, this question has always been present even when the actual mother was still around around yeah. you know like Vesna hints to that that there were problems before and um, yeah now now. Um, Moya tries to step in in a way, but she also st- tries to get Vesna to to step in into mm. the, into the role. But Vesna is preoccupied with, you know, with with her relationship with with the mother who just died, and and then there's the father who actually, in a way, maybe will step in as a mother, mm. you know, because he's got this tenderness. Um, we see that he. Is quite good with babies <laughs> in the yeah. end. So, so you know, yeah. he has this caring um, attitude or, or this, you know, some natural caring ability in him. Um, I love how there are so many throughout this film. There are so many. I mean, it's really quite a close study of grief and the different approaches to that grieving process. And I love that there's all these um, visual markers of absence. We have the the tea, the dinner setting being set for the mother each night. Um, the there's moments of destruction of these objects as well. And I, I really loved how you so much of this is communicated. It was really actually tricky to find a a bit of dialogue because so much of it is communicated in the visual register. Um, there's a lovely moment in which. Um, we have a sense of distance between Vesna, who's in the car, and Moya stroking her hair through the through the um, window and uh, of the car, and and even with the there's a moment in which their dad puts the mother's slippers on, and I just thought this these kind of how objects hold so much significance, particularly after you've lost someone, and just trying to reconnect with someone who's not there. Um, how did you what you worked with? Um, I forgot the name of your cinematographer. Sorry off my head Leo yeah Leo Pridan, yeah had you worked together before like there seems to be a very natural bond there yeah we we worked on um good luck all lot together oh, of course yeah and um yeah we started developing this um approach I guess <laughs> of working together or, um we also had a, a child in the main role there um and um 
yeah, we just decided to use, um, you know, handheld camera mm. and um, and um, four by three, you know, this kind of box like yeah. format. Yeah, I loved the um, ratio. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, I just think it's it's perfect for the faces, you know, and yes. to, to get really close to people and and um, to get this this intimacy, mm. but at the same time, um, yeah, we wanted to to capture the um, the loneliness of, of these mm. characters, I guess, because you know, there's sort of, I think there's a sense that there's not quite enough room in this mm. house where they live, but at the same time, each of them is, is alone, mm. you know, and so they're trying to kind of um, uh, live, I guess, <laughs> among mm. these these objects, um, yeah, that have been left, and, and actually um, even the, the bedroom, you know, the where the mother slept like they they are avoiding it so there's this whole mm. room inside of the house that is just un- unoccupied and mm. um so um Vesna is actually well Moya is the one who holds on to things and tries to you know keep keep everything and you know she she can't quite accept that this really happened mm. um whereas Vesna just is the one who is really active and, and wants to you know, just smash these objects and get mm. uh, kind of, you know, get some air into the house. It's it's kind yeah. of unbearable for her, you know. Yeah, I to love to just sit still and just kind of not talk about anything. And <laughs> you know, she she there's something in her that is very alive and absolutely. So, yeah. And I love that you give the child character so you know of Moya so much agency and and so much. And the film really is from her perspective. Um, I know that your film career really started in uh, children's television. Is that right? In Slovenia, you kind of worked within the youth and television, children's television. Um, is that right? Yeah. Well, that was my first job after after yeah. film school um, before before I moved here. Um, so this was about nine years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, somehow I've been drawn to this. Um, um, well, my stories have been, you know, the short stories um, for the short films. Have been have always centered around these, these children characters. You know, I've kind of been preoccupied by this position of a child who has been um, left alone somehow mm. inside of a family where something has happened and the adults are really inaccessible in a way. You know, preoccupied with something, and so the child tries to make sense of it all. You mm. know, and interpret the silences in her own way and. And um, take things into her own hands, and you know, trying to fix the situation as as as, um, as best as she can. Um, and yeah, so that's how um, you know my work with with children started quite 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 early. Um, and um, yeah, I enjoy it. It's it's a mm. very it's a very particular way of working, very different to um, to working with um, you know adult professional actors who. I kind of, um, you know, have got their ways of working and um, are very aware of themselves, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I like that too. I enjoy that as well. But, um, yeah, there's just something about um, working with kids. I mean, it's it's in a way, it's, it's professional as well, you know. Like, th- I mean, they're not professional, but they become professional, you know. Like someone like Loti, for example, she hasn't had any um, acting experience before. Like, she... She was into football and coding and stuff <laughs> like this, you know. She, and then this opportunity came up, and she was, you know, up for it. And um, 
but yeah, I had to explain everything, you know, yeah. what, what to expect, how to, <laughs> yeah, what's going to happen. And But then she totally, you know, she became Oh, she's an so actress, natural. You know? She's so natural on screen mm. as well. She really does dissolve into the character, I suppose. And it's interesting because your film, um, you mentioned non-actors, but you, of course, have Claudia Carvin, um, who's a very well-known Australian actor, um, you know, in this kind of almost again another sort of surrogate mother role um but showing a different way of being um that Moya doesn't have access to necessarily or at least not yet while her family is so splintered um it must have been sort of especially for this to be your directorial uh, like feature length debut it must have been fascinating this combination of non-actors established actors um and how you manage that um what was that process like Oh, I was so nervous. <laughs> but it was beautiful. I mean, yeah, yeah I was so honoured that Claudia said yes. You know, she liked the script and, and she was so nice to work with. Um, and um, But, yeah, the, it, I, I don't know. I, for me, working with actors is um, what I enjoy most, you know, about directing. Mm. And it's really at the forefront of, you know, it just got all my attentions, attention goes there. Uh, almost and so um this was also part of my work with the cinematographer Leo who you know we kind of agreed together that the actors are going to be at the forefront and then mm. we built uh, the way of working around it you know so so the kids don't have to or th- the other actors don't have to worry about you know where they're going to stand and how the you know is there light on their face or mm. not you know just I just want them to forget these things and just focus on on the moment because when you're working with kids that that's what you need to um you need to to have this right atmosphere and for them mm. to to be in the moment you know um and so um yeah so I like to um in a way develop a different process of working for each individual character yeah. for each actor mm. um depending on on um yeah their background but also the role um so yeah, it was it was interesting combining everything together. But like I said before, when when there's the right atmosphere on set, um, and if they're the right people, you know, that have been mm. chosen for for these roles, it, it kind of works, you know. Mm. Like every everyone gets, you know, the is on the same wa- wavelength in yeah, a way, and then yeah. and then things happen. Um, well, it's a tremendously evocative film, and I think that. It's really quite remarkable how much you're able to communicate in what is actually quite a short film, uh, 90 minutes, I think, from memory. So, uh, yeah, I, I found it really very economic almost in the sense of what you're able to communicate. And like I said, it's so much communi- – so much of that is communicating the visual sense um, and, and wonderful performances, especially um, – by Moya I just really thought that she was fantastic on screen like quite (laughs) magnetic in her own way um and you're going to have a special I know I understand this Sunday uh at 3 p.m the Lido is going to be presenting a QA um screening of um of the film and um you're going to be joined by um the Lottie is is it Lottie yeah Yeah. (laughs) um and you're also going to have um another one at Thornbury Picture House is that a QA and a as well or yes yeah yeah so me me and Lottie again (laughs) (laughs) double team (laughs) yeah yeah 
Um, so for listeners who want to check that out, you can head to lidocinemas.com.au or thornburypicturehouse.com.au. <laughs> I can double check whether uh, .com.au, yes, of course. So head um, to either of those for uh, more information and to also book your ticket. Sarah, it is so lovely to have you um, join us for tonight. And, um, yeah, I'm very excited to see how um, – how I mean, I, you've got this opportunity for two more Q and A's, but um, I feel like there's so much to discuss with this film. So um, I'm sure there'll be lots to lots more for you to be <laughs> unpacking over the next week or so. Yeah, thanks so much. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, and Moya Vesna is going to be in cinemas from this Thursday, um, so make sure you check it out. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flickboard and Cerise Howard. Earlier, we did have the um, opportunity to speak with writer and director Sarah Kern about her amazing directorial debut, Moya Vesna, which is going to be in cinemas here on th- by Thursday, and there's going to be some Q and A's coming up at both the and Thornbury Picture House, so make sure you check those out. Um, Cerise, I feel like before we get into this, we both have to uh, disclaim that we are board members of Melbourne Cinematheque. All right, you go first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is, I feel like, you know, we've been on the board, but you're also involved with the programming for Melbourne Cinematheque, so I'm very excited by the fact that we get to talk about this very exciting screening series, Genre Nonconformity and East Side Stories. To be honest, as soon as I read that, I was like, Cerise surely had a hand in this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely in the mix there. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's just the part before the colon. Let, yes. Let's not forget, it's decentering the musical part one. Yes. I actually, and we talked a little bit off air about this, I love musicals, but I feel like they're so often uh, sidelined in when we're talking about cinem- cinema, um, particularly like the idea of good cinema or... or the, um, the, the canon. The canon, the... yes. Um, and you may have got a bit of a taster of what we're possibly going to talk about because I played a wonderful track just prior called Angry Inch. Um some, some listeners out there might know what that's from. <laughs> but before we get into the two films that are going to take off, uh, kick off this um, screening series, um, can you tell us a bit about how this, this particular focus, genre nonconformity in the East Side, uh, and particularly focusing in on musicals, hmm. how this, this came about? Well, it just had to happen. <laughs> uh, for a long time, I'd uh, carried with me the idea that I, I desperately wanted to pair together Hedwig and the Angry Inch, um, John Cameron Mitchell's film from 2001, and um, and which has had a few stage manifestations in mm. Australia subsequently, and a cancelled one earlier this year. We might get into that controversy yet too, mm. or at least touch on it. Um, and uh, to pair that with a film that seems to have a, an awful lot in common that uh, – predates it by nearly 20 years, a German film called City of Lost Souls by a German troublemaker, activist filmmaker, Rosa von Praunheim, uh, an extremely prolific filmmaker associated with the new German cinema. Um, uh, it's an absolutely bonkers sort of punk new wave musical uh, set in Berlin. Yeah. At the time, it was a divided city which Hedwig is all about, like Hedwig and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Hedwig embodies this dividedness. Mm. Hedwig is sort of a metaphor for a number of things, but including uh, 
the divided city of Berlin and, and the notion of freedom on one side and oppression mm. and um, confinement on the other. Um, so City of Lost Souls features a whole lot of Americans who've expatriated themselves to West Berlin in the, in the midst of the Cold War. And they've gone there because mostly Berlin is that paragon of uh, anything goes sort of permissiveness and America not necessarily so much. And But both of those cultures, the American, German, both, have all sorts of l legacy issues, let's call them. Uh, you know, Germany at that time, Nazism, not really a, a distant memory. Mm. And there are plenty of hangovers from that to this day. And uh, America's got a whole lot of stuff it needs to address, as Trumpism has made abundantly clear. <laughs> yes. That stuff's always been bubbling away. And um, all that's systemic racism and oppression of minorities as well it all comes to the boil in both of these films you could mm. say really um so they're both films that celebrate otherness um and celebrate queerness and and just our kick-ass musicals to boot <laughs> they really are i was very excited to be able to um to play some tunes from both of them um i was actually not across city of lost souls so i love this about Melbourne Cinematheque that it's often about unearthing films that we may not have had the opportunity to see or may not have seen on the big screen which is always such a different experience and with the audience surrounding you so uh, before we get into to both of these Hedwig and the Angry Inch and City of Lost Souls I just want to give um, our listeners a little taste of what else is included because there's some other favorites of mine that are being showcased as part of this screening series um namely on wednesday the 14th of december the lure which mm. i saw at miff many moons ago one of my favorite films um and what a wild musical this is yeah. <laughs> um flesh eating mermaid sisters and mm -hmm. um set in kind of like a this seedy 1980s poland um yeah, what a wonderful film. I'm guessing you saw that at MIFF as well, did you? Uh, no, I originally saw that in Cardo Vivari Ooh. and um, the director was present and I was just blown away because mm. here was this young woman making her feature filmmaking debut um, in a country that didn't really have a tradition of musicals, being Poland, and just that she had this, oh, the audacity to think, well, okay, for my feature filmmaking debut, I'm going to make a musical that takes Hans Christian Andersen's dainty little little mermaid uh <laughs> story as a, a basis for a bunch of um you know to to take it into this 80s new wave disco-y <laughs> bonkers retro um uh cannibalistic mermaid uh <laughs> pop star fantasia it's it, and it's incredible and you know the the girls in it uh the, the actors I mean, Michalina Olshanska I'd seen before in an incredible Czech film called I, Olga Hypnarova. And when I saw her in this as well, I just thought she's going to be a huge star mm. at some point. Um, yeah, the film's amazing. And yeah. The, the, yeah it's, Such good fun. It's kind of – it's dark and sexy and just wonderfully feminist, I feel like. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So make sure you come along to that one. There's also The Legend of the Stardust Brothers um, – so this is a 1985 film. Um, do you know much about this one? This was not on my radar at all, but um, really fascinating setup. Yeah, well, this is a, a, another film that sort of had a um, – it's come to light recently. It's not a new film, but it's, it, it just has a very improbable backstory and 
It's uh, directed by the son of uh, Astro Boy creator Osama Tezuka. I think I got his name slightly wrong. Um, And it is a a musical that was born of uh, a bizarre idea. I mean, somebody had already written a soundtrack for a musical, but the musical didn't exist. And this was a notable (laughs) Japanese TV personality. And at some point, the, the various people involved with this film somehow combined to make a film for this soundtrack that had been written uh, in advance. And and it's a, a story of um, – it's a pop a pop duo, uh, a manufactured pop dream, sort of uh, rags to riches and where does that go next sort of um, trajectory. Uh, it, it is completely bonkers. <laughs> and there's cameos galore from – uh, all sorts of Japanese personalities of the time, including manga artists, and uh, oh, and, and and it's 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 really quite out there. It's beautifully designed, quite strange. Occasionally changes its form. It's a bit of a, a oh. shapeshifter. There's a bit of animation, and there's quite a bit of um, homage to another great '70s musical, um, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, yeah, so. Highly recommended. That's that's a fantastic double feature. The Lua and what we we're just discussing then, the legend of the Stardust Brothers, which is going to be happening on Wednesday the fourteenth of December. And to finish up the screening series on Wednesday the twenty first of September uh, December, <laughs> we've got two more, the Hop Pickers and Singing on the Treadmill. Um both like these is I kind of get over how much ground this this program is covering. Well, it's only part one, you see. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited by the fact that it's part one. Yeah. Um, so tell us about these two films. Yeah, well, this is where the East Side Stories part of that title came in because these are Eastern Bloc musicals, and all of these films um, in this season are about a sort of East meets West merger, either narratively or just the fact that the the musical is so often considered a very Western genre, uh, but these are all from the East, whether it's Eastern Europe or, or from Japan, in the case of The Legend of the Stardust Brothers. Uh, on this case, Hot Pickers from Czechoslovakia in the 60s and Singing on the Treadmill, Hungary in the 70s. And there was always a bit of a tradition of Eastern Bloc musicals of under socialist realism, under mm. you know the really um, nasty uh, doctrine of sort of Stalinist times, where people would be out in the fields or all the kids would be pitching in, doing their bit and bursting into song on their tractors and all extremely kitschy (laughs) and mostly embarrassing. (laughs) But out of all of that came some very self-aware films and films that managed to have their cake and eat it too, you Mm. could say. So The Hot Pick is is magnificently ambivalent in being the sort of story of sort of star-crossed lovers uh, who work on a collective farm. They risk expulsion from that farm if they uh, pursue their I- iconoclastic romance. <laughs> Would that be so bad? That's a re- <laughs> it's, a, it's really provocative. And this, mm. this is a film that emerged at the same time as the new wave was emerging in Czechoslovakia. So it's not by someone who was part of that group, which featured Milos Forman or Vera Hitilova. But it is directed by someone named Vladislav Rachman. Uh, who had a, a background in making what you could sort of call proto-video clips 
Oh, really? Yeah. And that was in the 70s? 60s. Oh, 60s. Yeah, right. yeah. There's, yeah some oh, very, 64, 1964. Yeah. yeah. Uh, singing on the Treadmill, I know less about. Mm. I haven't actually seen that one yet. That's an Eloise Ross pick. Oh, of course. And so I thought I'd actually <laughs> treat myself to going into that one sight unseen because um, I know the other films, some of them very well. Yeah. Um, and especially having done a real deep dive on Hedwig and City of Lost Souls just lately because I wanted to write something. Because as you know, Flick, the Cinematheque, Likes to have annotations yes. that people can read uh, about the films either before or after the screening and get the full contextualised framing of the program. Mm. And yeah, so can we do, can we do like just to go back to the starting films, which you know I do want to talk about your article in Senses of the Cinema, Senses of Cinema, um, which is all about Hedwig and the Angry Inch. There was so much. This is a film actually that I saw um, when I first went to film school. It was one of the first films that really stuck with me. I remember getting out on DVD, just so captured by the the cover yep. and, and knowing a bit about it, I think, like being like, oh, I've heard lots of people talk about this, but I really had no idea what to expect. It is such a wild and wonderful story. Um this is re- your your article to walk away. You got to leave something behind, or a long short story. Um, long story short. <laughs> a long story short. Sorry, <laughs> long short story. That's another. That's another one. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was so interesting because you touch upon um, not only like that connection you, like you mentioned before about City of the Lost Souls and Hedwig and the Anger Inch, but also about this idea of um, the um, Plato Symposium which touches upon this idea of um, the sexes not as two but as as three. Mm. And and that's kind of at the centre of of Hedwig. Um, Can you talk us through a bit about that that side of it? Because I found that really fantastic. You've got this quote. um, You say, there was man – this is from Plato, um, Aristophanes. um, There was man, woman and the union of the two, having a name corresponding to this double nature which had once a real existence but is now lost. And the word androgynous is only preserved as a term of reproach. And can you talk a bit about how the connection there with that? Well, a, li- a little bit, certainly. Mm. Um, because it all gets explained uh, in song and like, in performance from Hedwig and band within the film and with animation to accompany to actually really illustrate um, the, the that, that particular... Um, Oh, it's a story being told by Aristophanes within Plato's Symposium, and it's, you know, it's an origin myth. It's a, yeah. a, a creation myth, or a, cre- a myth of how humanity was created, and the idea that there were it was never about a binary mm. of gender. That um, it's uh, you know the song is called "Origin of Love," and uh, you know Hedwig isn't just um, an embodiment of this metaphor of, of division of the Berlin Wall and. Um, West and East, um, and a collapse of that binary, but also an embodiment of uh, this idea of um, multiplicity in mm. in gender and being. Mm. But also, as that myth goes on to explain that you know the gods uh, thought that humans were getting a bit full of themselves, and so split every human in two. And and that's not um, to suggest that then a What's formed of that is male and female, and therefore male will seek female, male may not, male may seek male, or or there might still be androgyny and possibility and fluidity, and it's um, an incredibly queer creation myth that's nearly two thousand five hundred years old. Mm. So 
you know, this stuff isn't new because there's, there's some pretty wacky stuff that emerges from the right-wing commentariat out mm. there. It's just, well, gender fluidity is a very new uh, <laughs> idea and invention. And it just really isn't. No, not at all. And the fact that we, um, you know, like I, I love that this film has that connection to that and, and you really unpack it in your article. But also that um, this is is partly based upon um, – uh, um, sorry, I've forgotten Mitchell uh, – John – sorry, I've forgotten his – Cameron Mitchell. Thank you. <laughs> the director's own experience. Like he's a gay man growing up in – I think it was a military – yeah. Family. Yep. Um, and just so you mentioned before about this kind of tension between East and West and America and, and Germany and those sorts of things. But I, I think that it's so interesting coupling the musical with this military background. Um, it's definitely original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And it, it plays out in the narrative as well. It does. It does. There's so much to it. It's, it's a very philosophically rich mm. film. Um, and. Uh, and and for all that, it's a, a raucous rock and roll ride uh, with all sorts of varieties of rock and roll in it. It is actually a very moving film, ultimately too. I find mm. so. It's um, there are so many ideas in the in the mix there, but it's also just an awful lot that I, I think is felt. And whatever mm. your own um, identity is, uh, I think you know, part of uh, the what what the film's really about is is this idea of transformation that all of us can morph can evolve and can occasionally need to shed things as well mm. in order to move on um so there's a there's a really great profundity to it and and that it's not all about the sausage casings we live in that we <laughs> we can transcend that with whatever it is that we have to work with we're not all about that we're not all about our organs we're all about how we live and whom yeah. we seek to share with and uh, share that life with. Um, and ideally that's reciprocated at, at some point as well, that, that wish <laughs> to share. Because uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, poor Hedwig is a, a, certainly at the start of the film a very thwarted yes. character. Yes. Yeah. I, I was completely captivated by Hedwig and the Angry Inch when I first saw this film and I'm very excited that it's going to be playing as part of Melbourne Cinematheque's latest screening series, not Genre Nonconformity and the East Side Stories, Decentering the Musical Part 1. And we're going to be doing some decentering of cinema uh, very soon because we're going to be chatting about the recent Sight and Sound poll that came out. Uh, detailing the greatest films of all time. Cough, cough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but like I mentioned, uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch is going to be screened alongside City of the Lost Souls, um, which is a 1983 film. Um, we didn't get a chance to kind of dig into that one, but I am, I've got a beautiful track from, from this film. Do you want to say a few words quickly on City of Lost Souls? Wait, just to... It's the title track? It's not the yes, one that, that yes. plays at the start. Yes. Uh, I'll just say that much. Uh, and it's written by Jane County, a, a notable trans pioneering punk musician um, and character, uh, quite a character. Um, but she's not the only singer in this. There are, there are three verses sung by different um, performers from within the film. But I'll let the, the music, uh, I mean, it's just such a great track. So <laughs> let's just throw to it. 
Um, <laughs> you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R and the Melbourne Cinematheque. For more information about that screening, you can head to melbournecinematheque.org. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and Cerise Howard. Uh, just prior, we had a chat about some of the excellent musicals that are being featured as part of the recent or upcoming uh, screening series for Melbourne Cinematheque, uh, which is a non for profit. Um, Film Society, it's Australia's oldest, in fact. Uh, <laughs> Cerise is looking at me doubtful. I think might be being pipped very slightly by another, but it's since 1948 or so. So, yeah, it's long time. Yeah, proper old. <laughs> um, and for more information about exactly what we're going to be screening, um, it is head to melbournecinematech.org. But um, we did mention, and we did, we're having a little chat about this, um, Sight and Sound, the film magazine, uh, recently has put out the critics' top 20 greatest films of all time. Oh, top 100. Top 100, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, but I have got the top 20 in front of me, but the top 100 is even more remarkable. Cerise, there has been a lot of buzz about this. Well, it's because it only happens every 10 years mm. and that's always the source of a lot of uh, hand-wringing to either <laughs> side of the publication of the results. And... Um, Look, yeah, it's, it's, there's been change and some people mm. out in the wider, um, let's say the Twitter sphere <laughs> as, as one particular uh, universe, um, have not accepted change very well, no. which is um, amusing. Actually, I think for the most part. And sad. Well, let's get into the specifics. What are they saying? The <laughs> what are they upset? Well, well, there's actually been... Okay, so for this poll that dates back to 1952. Yeah. Uh, between 1962 and 2002, Citizen Kane held firmly to the number one position. Mm. Uh, uproar 10 years ago when <laughs> Vertigo toppled it. Much more hand-wringing ensued. <laughs> And then plenty of hand-wringing from other people going, oh, fuck's sake, really? It's all about <laughs> – has there really not ever been a, a greater film made in all of cinema history, this this medium that dates back to 1895 and many of these greatest films of all time represent a certain mindset, a certain type of person, we think, who might have been polled and has sort of rusted on opinions. And <laughs> Anyhow, things have really changed big time, at least – in the number one position this time round. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of mumbling and grumbling about uh, some of the films that have made other slots in the top 100, but the number one has changed and dramatically. Vertigo, Citizen Kane are still second mm, and third. I see that, yeah. But, yeah, the number one, uh, I don't know, do you have drum a drum roll? roll? Yeah. yeah. Just imagine it. <laughs> Is by the late Chantal Ackerman, uh, Jeanne Dielman, um, a three-and-a-half-hour-long feminist provocation <laughs> par excellence. I think this means we've won, Cerise. <laughs> well, no, because the backlash is only just beginning. <laughs> That's how you know you're making progress. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is extraordinary. It's, it, I mean, it's again, it's not a new film. This no. dates back to 1975, but it's still indicative of a whole bunch of change that some people aren't coping with. No, they're having lots of long conversations with their therapist. There's a, it's a fascinating. We were chatting before. I mean, the focus of tonight, um, you know, previous, our previous discussion was about musicals. We have scoured through. Did we find Singing in the Rain is there, of course, at number 10. Yep. Um, but not many others. Not really any other yeah. true musicals. No. Um, 
And I, it made me think about the fact that musicals are so often um, kind of just sidelined, like I said before, you know, like they're seen as not really cinema or or they're seen as a, occupying a very feminine or yes. queer space. Yes, um, which means they're lesser, <laughs> lesser <laughs> yes. than. And, and not real cinema, Cerise. Yeah, you know? and, and likewise comedies, especially of a yes. romantic persuasion, mm. uh, horrors. Um, porn, yeah, anything that brings the body into play and suggests, yeah. I don't know, feminine weakness. You're, we're not have full agency over our body. We're, <laughs> we've, we've let emotion rule <laughs> our minds somehow and therefore made poor decisions like voting Chantal Ackman's extremely rigorous, <laughs> extremely intelligent and extremely feminist film, The Greatest of All Time. For at least 10 years more. <laughs> yeah, I'm delighted. And I'm also delighted with, I mean, look, there's some there's some obvious ones in there. The Godfather, of course, coming in at, at number 12. Um, John Ford's The Searchers at 15. Um, yeah, look, there's some ones where I'm like, okay, yeah, the Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola. Number nineteen. There's ones where you kind of think this is this is quite standard fare. Mm. Were there any that stood out for you? Yeah. Um, well, look, there, there's generally to begin with more women. Yes, represented in the in the results. And Claire pres- Denis at number seven. Yes, yes, and Agnes Varda a couple of mm. times. Uh, Fourteen with Cleo from five to seven. And she was the godmother of the French New Wave, basically. I mean, as it is only right and proper that she is represented, and more than once. Uh, the Gleaners and I is in there somewhere as well. Um, Maya Darren at number 16 with Meshes of the Afternoon, a a short film. Shorts aren't well represented in these canonical lists typically either. That's so true. And I think that is often down to the fact that it's quite hard sometimes to present short films. People will have them always accompanying with a feature. So sometimes there's just the lack of literacy around that. Yeah. I get a real sense. I mean, actually, I just erased a a man's contribution to Meshes of the (laughs) Afternoon, but Alexander Hackenschmid, Alexander Hammond, was also a co-director on Meshes of the Afternoon. But really, it is all about Maya Darren. You're going to have the Twitter sphere uh, going off. uh, Uh, (laughs) They're going off already. They they went off some time back. (laughs) Daisies is present. My all-time favourite Czechoslovak New Wave film, Viera Hitchilova. Just such mischief. That's that's sort of the other pole to Jean Delman. If that's extremely rigorous and painstaking, Daisy's is just mayhem. Yes. And such joyous, gleeful mayhem on the form and content levels alike. Absolutely. And I encourage um, for listeners who want to, who are curious about what the top one hundred. Greatest films? Yeah. Yeah, of all time. I'm sure yeah. I've got it right. Um, uh, you can head to, well, just put into check out Sight and Sound's um, website um, and have your own thoughts about that. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Mm-hmm.